All right, so we're um, trying to get my clock started here. There we go. Um, going to continue with the millennium this week and probably next week. And the reason being, there is so much about the millennium that people misunderstand because, as I said last week, many times preachers, teachers, especially in today's situation, a lot of those who are teaching or speaking prof prophecy, um, they're borrowing millennial teaching and applying it to the church. And so there's a lot of things that people are saying that are going to be or uh, prophesying that are going to be that really have to do with the millennium because the things that are said about the millennium cannot happen at any other time. And you can't just take, you know, one verse out of a millennial passage and say this is going to happen, you know, now when it's all tied together with some other things. And we'll see some very um, strange, uh, interesting things. I just call this the mystery of millennial worship tonight because we're going to be looking a lot at the temple and the millennial temple that will be built. Who built it? Who builds it? I believe God does, supernaturally. Uh, it just makes it, because there's there's no period of time for building it. It just it's just there, and so interesting. Uh, we'll talk more about that as we get to it. Again, as I as I said um, a few minutes ago, we I put this chart back on the front because. We're talking about the, the different ways that people see um, the return of Jesus. <laughs> is it premillennial, which is the blue column, which is what we believe, that Jesus is going to return before the millennium, which is what happens if you read Revelation chapter 19 and 20. <laughs> he comes back with all the saints, defeats all the forces of the world that have gathered against him at the Battle of Armageddon, binds Satan for a thousand years, sets up a kingdom on earth for a thousand years, and, and establishes his rule over those things for a thousand years, and at the end of a thousand years, it says it six times. <laughs> There's a thousand years. And so that happens when? After his return. So, which means that the return of the Lord is before the millennium, right? If you read the Bible. Now, if you want to throw your own interpretation into it, you move it, which is what postmillennial teaching does. Postmillennial says, well, no. The millennium really is about the rule of Jesus through the church in this age. And post-millennial teaching is that the church is going to subdue the earth and then Jesus will return. That we will uh, establish his kingdom on this earth, again, through the gospel, and that we will uh, see all of these things 
that it's talked about in the millennium happen during this church age. So post-millennial teaching borrows a lot of the millennial prophecies to apply them to the church. And that the church is going to do these things or help establish these things. And will we rule and reign with Christ? Yes. Yeah. After he comes back. <laughs> That's what it says. Again, if you follow scripture. But if you want to move things around, you can do that. But it doesn't flow. And that in post-millennial, then after we have done all that, Jesus returns. The dead are raised to life. And Jesus sets up his throne, brings forth the judgment of the great white throne, gets rid of all of the unbelievers, go into eternal damnation, and establishes the new heaven and new earth. That's post-millennial. And that his return is at the end of the thousand years. And so that's the way they see it. Amillennial, which is the brown column. Amillennial, which doesn't mean no millennium. It means a realized millennium. That it's not going to be literally a thousand years. That this, this kingdom of subduing the earth through the church. Again, through the church. Subduing the earth through the church will last until God says enough. And then God will bring forth. There is um, no specific situation, no specific conditions in all millennial that establishes when he's going to come back. It's just that God decides now is the time and does that. One of the things, and we talked about this last week, and it's going to apply to things tonight go all the way down in your chart to the to the last column down at the bottom Israel and the church in premillennial teaching which is where we are premillennial pre-trib we believe that the tribulation happens before or the rapture happens before the tribulation then the seven years of tribulation then the Lord returns and then the thousand years that's that's how we believe it and in premillennial teaching, there is a complete distinction between the church and Israel. Israel was one thing. They were under the dispensation of Moses of the law. Before that, Abraham promised. And so under those dispensations of Abraham and Moses, Jewish time, but God said that there would be an end to Gentile time until the times of the Gentiles is fulfilled. There's, so there's a Gentile age. Well, that Gentile age is the church age. And when Jesus rose from the dead, that established a new dispensation. And the new dispensation means new house rules. That's what a dispensation means, management. Um, 
stewardship as it's sometimes translated, but really it simply a Greek word which means the rules of the house. And so the rules of the house are different. You can't be saved through the law. You never could. But God removed the law as a means of obtaining righteousness. Romans 10 verse 4. That's just what it says. So that we don't obtain righteousness through the law. We obtain righteousness by what? By faith. Well, in reality, how did Abraham obtain righteousness? By faith. How did people under the law obtain righteousness? By faith. <laughs> so it's never really changed, but they had established this time of the law. But that was the time of the Jewish age. But that was put on hold, in a sense, with Jesus' resurrection and ascension, and the church age began, which lasts for a period of time. Under post-millennial teaching, there is no distinction. Israel and the church are one in the same. It's just that today, the church is the new Israel. And any prophecies, any things that said concerning spiritual issues, anything God said concerning spiritual things to Israel in the Old Testament now applies to the church. And so any prophecies of the Old Testament uh, about uh, their kingdom, about their establishment, actually have to be interpreted as meaning to the church. And especially tonight as we look at some millennial teaching, they borrow these things into this present age. Um, all millennial is pretty much the same. They borrow those things and they see no distinction between Israel and the church. But God does. And God has a separate program for each. In the church age, it's one thing. And in uh, Old Testament Israel, it was another. Now, go to page two. Uh, we need to complete some of the things we were talking about last week as we were introducing some things about the millennium. And uh, the, the millennium is a different period of time. It's a time when... when there's absolute rule. There will be no war. There will be sin because humanity continues through the millennium. It's just that all the people that began the millennium were believers. Otherwise, they'd be dead. Christ's return. But they were believers, and they lived. But then they began the millennium. And during those thousand years, they can sin because they have flesh. They haven't been recreated in the image and likeness of God. They're not recreated and resurrected, given resurrection bodies. They can sin, and they do. But their rebellion, any sin that they have, is put down immediately. And some of the, some of the rebellion has to do with them coming and receiving and giving offerings and giving sacrifices. And if they don't come, they are severely judged. And so this will be a period of time that is altogether different in our mind. But again, one of the things that it's about is that there is, it's not the new heaven and the new earth. The millennium is not the new heaven and the new earth. I, I think I borrowed this phrase. It was... 
in, in my notes uh, that I had made uh, in teaching through some of this before. But the millennium is the last chapter in earth time. The millennium is not the first chapter of eternity. The millennium is earth time. It's not the new heaven and the new earth. It is a, a time when God is ruling, when there's peace. Um, animals don't fight, don't war. Predators, I, I watched a hawk this morning swoop down and rapture a, uh, a snake. Caught up, right? Rapturo. And caught up about a three-foot snake and just flew up to the wire and the snake's wiggling around. It's like, that won't happen. That won't happen in the millennium because hawks will be vegetarians, lions and tigers and bears. Oh, yay. They'll be, they'll be great. Yeah, they'll be fun. Fuzzy bears and, you know, and there'll be... There'll be none of that. There'll be no war. There'll be no use for weapons. All of that will be done away with. And so that this time of the millennium is a strange period of time. Top of your page two, Isaiah 35. The wilderness and the dry land shall be glad. The desert shall rejoice and blossom like the crocus. It shall blossom abundantly and rejoice with joy and singing. The glory of Lebanon shall be given to it, the majesty of Carmel and Shuron. They shall see the glory of the Lord, the majesty of our God. Notice creation during the millennium begins expressing its praise to God. The rocks will be singing. The trees will clap their hands. Right, all those things that it says in the Bible, the oceans will rejoice. All of these things will be done. Why? Because God has, through the time of the tribulation, what did he do? He purged the earth. Purged it. Cleansed it. Didn't recreate it. Cleansed it. And so creation is rejoicing in this thousand years of Freedom of full expression. Now, I know many times we hear people take these verses and apply them to Israel of today, but they're not. This is not about Israel of today, though through Israeli agriculture and horticulture, uh, they have done tremendous things with the land that they have, but that is not this. That is man-made this will be God made. This is God doing these things. Isaiah 62 is another whole passage, entire chapter that's given over to talk about the things concerning the millennium. So why don't you just look over there, Isaiah 62. I'm not going to read through a lot of the chapter, but it's what's interesting is that these things that are spoken here cannot be something that's happening now they're not um they're not even some of them not even possible during this period of time and so this is this is 
Zion's salvation is the head title that's given in my NSV or ESV. And so here is God speaking about a time that is yet to come. For Zion's sake, I will not keep silent. For Jerusalem's sake, I will not be quiet until her righteousness goes forth as brightness and her salvation as a burning torch. The nation shall see your righteousness and all the kings your glory, and you shall be called by a new name that the mouth of the Lord will give. Now, this didn't happen when Israel came back from Babylon. It didn't. It didn't happen in Jesus' time. It didn't happen in 1949 or 1967 or 1972. This didn't happen when Israel came back to the land. Not this. And so God is speaking. Is this going to happen? So if it's going to happen, when will it happen? And how is it that all the nations of the world are going to give a claim to Israel? That sure isn't happening now. If they can speak evil of Israel, they will. If they have to think up new things to say, they will. The world hates Israel, but there's going to be a time when they won't. Verse 3 says, You shall be a crown of beauty in the hand of the Lord, a royal diadem in the hand of your God. You shall no more be termed forsaken, and your land shall no more be termed desolate, but you shall be called, My delight is in her. And your land married. God is going to bring his wife, right? Israel was God's wife, portrayed more beautifully uh, in any other place than the book of Hosea. All right, so the church is the bride of Christ. Israel is God's wife. I know, don't get confused. It's just, it's just terminology, right? It's just God's using analogies. And so he says that this is, this is what God is going to do for this, it's, this has not happened in our time. Now, I know you've probably had people take parts of these verses and give them to you. you maybe you've believed it. You know, that verse 4, you should know be termed forsaken. Maybe, maybe uh, you in your life had a time when you were forsaken and somebody said, you know, I feel like God is telling me there's, that you no longer be called forsaken. That's a spiritual truth, but it's not the fulfillment of this prophecy. This is about the nation of Israel and God's people. When's this going to happen? Millennium. All right. Now, we could read all the rest of chapter 62, but I, I'm not going to right now. And so this is, this again is God bringing uh, his timing Many of the prophecies of the Old Testament, especially Hosea uh, and in Amos, especially in the later chapters of Isaiah, um, scattered chapters through Jeremiah, a lot of Ezekiel speaks of the millennium, speaks of a time that God is going to do to restore in this earth a nation that will be the glory 
of his work so that all of the all of the honor and all of the attention and all of the the in a sense praise adoration that is directed at Israel really goes to God because what he has done what he has made his people and so this is going to take place we see uh, in in the New Testament some references to this in Acts chapter 1 verse 3 I've got the verse there Acts chapter 1 verse 3 uh, during the 40 days between Jesus resurrection and his ascension uh, during those 40 days, he was with his disciples. And it says in Acts 1-3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs. We have two or three in the Gospels. There were many. Appearing to them during the 40 days. During. And the Greek phrase means over that period of time. During those periods of time, Jesus appeared time and again to his disciples. And what was he doing? Look at what it says. Speaking about the kingdom of God. That's not the church age. That's the coming kingdom. How do we know that? Because of the question that the disciples asked in verse 6. Tell us, when is this going to be? Thinking, you know, two or three days, maybe a month gonna you know set up this stuff get your army together you know we're all ready to fight here we're ready to go Peter's got a sword don't know if any the rest of us have one you know we we we're good he's not too good with it but you know we use him he said so tell us when is this when is this gonna happen when when are the, we're, we're ready to go he said that's not what I'm talking about those things are in my father's hands to know the times and the seasons. So that is not a pointed thing right now. What season is it for you? What did Jesus tell us about? What, what is their season? The spirit will come upon you. Right? And you will be my witnesses. That's the season. We call it the church age. This is our season. This is our time. Our appointed time. You shall receive power. The Holy Spirit coming upon you. And be my witnesses. That's, that's the time that we have. And so the church got busy doing that. During the church age, but after the church age, 200 years, 300 years, fighting about this, fighting about that, who's, who's in power, who's in authority, who's, you know, the, the top dog here, uh, is it this bishop, is it that bishop, is it this person, is it that person, you know, whose directions do we follow, um, finally they got the Bible collected and put together, you know, and so all of this happened, and the church age lost its power. And things just kind of dwindled. And then men stepped in and said, hey, we're going we're gonna to appoint things, and we're going to do it this way, and we're going to do it that way, and this man is going to speak, and whatever he says is, is like it's coming from the mouth of Christ. And thus began the Holy Roman Empire. All right, and so... Things got out of line, but that's not the way God wanted it. 
Acts chapter 3, Peter in his preaching refers to a time of refreshing and the restoration of all things. That there will be times of refreshing and the restoration of all things. Folks, that's not happening now. I mean, I know there is refreshing for us in the Lord, but this is not the times of refreshing. We've got war going on. We had all kinds of division and separation. But there's going to be times of refreshing. There's going to be an age of refreshing called a thousand years or a millennium. And it'll be at the time of the restoration of all things. And those things are appointed. All right, so this thousand years is going to be different than any age that the earth has experienced. Well, you know what? We could have said that about the church age that was going to come. Because the church age was different than any age that had ever been before. They could have said that about the dispensation of the law at Mount Sinai. And God gave them the law because they said, no, you tell us what we're supposed to do. We were talking about this at the end of class last week, Bob and Jonathan Brooks and I, and we were talking about the fact that Israel chose the law. They said, no, you tell us what we need to do. God redeemed them, brought them out of Egypt under the Abrahamic covenant, the covenant of promise. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. God said that over and over. He brought them through the Red Sea because he made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He gave them manna. He gave them water, all those things in the wilderness till they got to Sinai. And at Sinai, people said, you know, God's kind of scary. And it'd be better if God just told you what we're supposed to do and we'll do it. Really? How long did that last? Oh, not, a, not an hour, not a minute. <laughs> you, go, you go to God, you find out from him what we're supposed to do, you tell us and we'll do it. And thus began the law. And so God said, all right, you want law? I'll give you some laws. But the law, the dispensation was different than anything else. Never been that way before. It certainly wasn't that way under Abraham. There was no law under Abraham. So don't go back and judge people, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, uh, any of those. But don't go back and judge them by what you know about the law or New Testament truth. They didn't have it. They had a promise. And the point was, are you believing in the promise? Are you seeking to be a blessing to this earth? That God can bless all nations through you. Do you want that? Esau said, I don't want that. I don't, I don't want to be the source for all of that. Give it to somebody else because I don't want it. Esau hated it. So God hated him. And so it was passed on to Jacob. But that age was different. And so when we look at the millennium, yeah, it's, it's different. So I want you to turn to Ezekiel chapter 37. Ezekiel 37, we're going to be a lot looking at passages in Ezekiel, and they're scattered passages throughout, but 
the closer you get toward the end of the book of Ezekiel, the more and more it comes up. Now, the book of Ezekiel is collected prophecies. Unlike Isaiah, where they're collected in a certain order, Jeremiah, fairly much, but Isaiah, Jeremiah gets scattered prophecies too, but Ezekiel is just like, he's all over the place. At one time, God's prophesying this, then the very next part of the chapter even, not even another chapter, he's prophesying something totally different, and they're not necessarily connected that they're not chronological so don't think of Ezekiel as being chronologically in order it's not it's just gathered all right so they put it together but Ezekiel 37 uh, you're familiar with this passage at the beginning about the dry bones all right so this is the prophecy concerning the dry bones and God is going to breathe life what is the dry bones well we can say well that's us yeah there's a spiritual truth to that, but that's really not what the prophecy is about. The prophecy is about who? Israel. And it certainly wasn't Israel when they came back from Babylon, as they didn't have power. And they weren't the glory of, of God during that period of time. And they certainly weren't that when Jesus appeared. And they haven't been that in this age even when they went back to the land, Israel still is not the glory of God, attracting all people in the nations, demonstrating God's goodness and his love toward everyone. Um, no. But they will be. They will be. And God is going to gather them from all over the earth. You've heard of the lost ten tribes. A lot of people can't even trace their Jewish lineage. They don't know if they belong to the tribe of Reuben or Gad or Naphtali because all of that was lost. They may know if they belong to Levi or Judah, maybe Benjamin, some Simeon. And once in a while, they'll be able to trace a lineage to someone else. But for the most part, the ten tribes scattered. The Assyrians did that. And so that all of the names were lost. But you know what? God knows where they are. And just like the 144,000, remember we talked about that? And God is going to find 12,000 from those tribes. They don't even know that they're from the tribe of Gad. But God's going to find 12,000 of them, gather them, and anoint them to be his prophets. Evangelists. Isn't that glorious? Well, the same thing's going to happen in the millennium. God is going to search throughout the earth. And he's going to gather them all back together. I have to believe it's going to be supernatural that he gathers them. It's not based on their ability to travel because by the end of the tribulation, the world's in such a mess. I don't know that you could travel if you wanted to. But God can gather them. He doesn't, he doesn't need an airplane or a train or even a horse or a donkey. He can gather his people. And he will. And so he's told to prophesy over the dry bones, and we, we're familiar with that part of the prophecy. I want you to go down to verse 20. And so he, he goes on, and he's coming finally down to this, um, this situation that's going to take place. And he says in verse 20, When the sticks 
on which you write are in your hand before your eyes. Then say to them. And so Ezekiel is told to take two sticks. And on one stick write the name Israel and on the other stick write the name Judah. Indicating this separation. Judah was the two tribes in the south which actually had absorbed two of the other tribes into them. Benjamin and Simeon had been uh, absorbed. And so pretty much it's just Judah. And then the Israel was the other ten tribes. There was never a righteous king in the ten tribes during the time that they ruled. None of their kings were descended from David. And so there was nothing but rebellion. They had prophets, Elijah, Amos, were prophets to that area, Elisha. They prophesied to the north, but they didn't listen. They didn't care. But you know what? God cared. God had, God had a righteous remnant there. In each one of those tribes, God had a righteous remnant. And God was able to follow those people all the way down. They got scattered by the Assyrians. God knows where they are. Some of them were able to find their way back to Israel. Some were just scattered throughout the earth. God knows where they are. And he will bring them back. And so look at, it says, join these two sticks together. Verse 20, join them before, together. And then say to them, speak to the sticks, which is the unification of Judah and, and Israel. And say to them, thus says the Lord God, behold, I will take the people of Israel from the nations among which they have gone and will gather them from all around and bring them to their own land. Verse 22, and I will make them one nation in the land on the mountains of Israel. That's the kingdom right there. Verse 23, uh, oh, no, sorry, in the, in the mountains of Israel. And one king come back to that one king shall be king over them all and they shall be no longer two nations and no longer divided into two kingdoms they shall not defile themselves anymore with their idols and their detestable things or with any of their transgressions but i will save them from all of their backslidings in which they have sinned and will cleanse them and they shall be my people and i will be their god that's millennial language that's god gathering his people this is not after babylon this is not in 1958 49 whatever when they were brought back to the land no it's not of that this this is the millennium verse 24 my servant david huh well david's gone no no God's going to give him life again. He's going to have a resurrection body. My servant David shall be king over them. And they shall have one shepherd again. David will be their king and their shepherd. Isn't that what he was before? He's going to have a new position. This never happened any other time. All right, I hope I know you're going to get tired of me saying that. But it didn't. So this is talking about something that is so supernatural and so distinct that we can't apply it to anything else. You can't spiritualize this and make it apply somehow to the church. There's no way. 
He goes on, they shall walk in my rules and be careful to obey my statutes. You say, well, this is about the church age. No, we don't live by the laws and the statutes. We don't. They shall dwell in the land that I give to my servant Jacob, where your fathers lived. They and their children and their children's children shall dwell there forever. And David, my servant, shall be their prince forever. Their prince for how long? Forever. Forever. So... He's not going to die. Well, he can't. He's got a resurrected body. <laughs> so that's, that's not going to happen. It can't happen any other time than the millennium that this could take place. Verse 26, and I will make a covenant of peace with them, and it shall be an everlasting covenant. How long will it last? Forever. Forever. And I will set them in their land and multiply them and will set my sanctuary in their midst. There it is. This is the millennial temple. And as glorious as it is and as great as it is, God just says, I'm going to set it there. He didn't even say, I'm going to build it. He just said, I'm going to set it there. Now, how many of you have studied the tabernacle? Some of you have studied it with me. You studied the tabernacle. What, is, what was the one thing that God told Moses? I want you to build it according to what? Uh, the pattern that you saw in heaven. Is that what he said? So Moses saw the true tabernacle in heaven. The one on the earth is a shadow. You know, if I, if I turn on a bright light at the back of the room and I hold up my hand... The shadow that's on there, that's not my hand. It's just the shadow of my hand. Well, the tabernacle on earth was just the shadow of the glorious tabernacle that's in heaven. And the glory of God shining against the tabernacle in heaven projected the shadow onto the earth. And the shadow was there as a teaching tool. It was there to teach the people how to follow. So I could... I could put some objects up there and I could use the shadow to teach you things based on the shadow. This is the index finger, this is the thumb, right? This is the palm of the hand, right? And so you could teach things from the shadow, but they're about the what? The reality, the real. Well, guess what? There's been a millennial temple in heaven waiting. Just like the tabernacle waited for a time, there's been a temple in heaven that's been waiting for a time. And God is going to do what? He's not going to put a shadow on the earth. He's going to move it to the earth. <laughs> that's pretty glorious. There's, there's not Moses through uh, Bezalel and the other guys that worked with him. Don't know their names right off hand. They just kind of dropped out. But... All those guys that were anointed to work with Moses and help him build and all the jewels. and There's not going to be a crew of people doing that. God's just going to set it there. You say, I, I, Jeff, you're, just, you're kind of pushing things. I'm just reading the Bible. I will, set my, I will set my sanctuary in their midst forever. My dwelling place shall be with them. I'll be their God. They shall be in my... God is not going to be in heaven. He's literally going to dwell here. God, this is pretty glorious. 
Then the nations will know that I am. The nations will know. The nations will know. That I am the Lord who sanctifies Israel when my sanctuary is in their midst. It is not, oh please get this, it is not them making themselves holy. They didn't sanctify themselves and I will live in their midst. No, I have sanctified them by living in their midst. It's his glorious presence that absolutely overwhelms and sets his glory in the earth. This is a pretty powerful section. Now, it doesn't stop here because we go on to other chapters. We'll come back and look at some other things, but turn over to Isaiah 44. Isaiah 44. Starting in chapter 40, uh, we, we read about God building this temple. Or not building it, but we read about what God built or set and so Ezekiel is told to measure it and hear how it's going to look and so how many of you have read through these before and it's like okay and my mind is cramped with cubits and furlongs I don't know what those are and I'm trying to visualize how big this thing is, or whatever. Harold's loving it. I'm not. <laughs> we got a south gate and an inner court and all these things. And so you're reading through here, and, and he's not building it. He's just viewing it, measuring it, reporting on it. It's, it's like I went back, and, and then behind, in the inner temple behind it, there's these chambers where they... they boil the sacrifices and they uh, bake the bread and all these things are taken care of and and it's glorious and there's all these chambers and inner rooms and it just goes on and on but then we come all the way over to what God is going to do as he restores what's there and chapter 44 talks about the prince and starting in chapter 44, verse 1, it says, And then he brought me back to the outer gate of the sanctuary. This is Ezekiel 44, verse 1, which faces east, and it was shut. And the Lord said to me, This gate shall remain shut, it shall not be opened, and no one shall enter by it. For the Lord, the God of Israel, has entered by it, therefore it shall remain shut. Only the prince may sit in it to eat bread before the Lord. He shall enter by way of the vestibule of the gate and shall go out by the same way. All right, so this is the eastern gate. Eastern, right? So this eastern gate, and the prince can come out of the vestibule, which is to the west. He can come up to the gate and in a sense sit in the gate, but not go through it. But when he's done, he has to go back by the same way he came. No one goes through this gate, for it is the gate of the Lord himself. The prince, therefore, is not the Lord, right? And we've already seen that. Who is the prince? David. Who is the king? Mm, David. 
David will sit as king and prince, goes by both names. Prince in, in, um, in Hebrew can also be translated captain. And so it has military significance. Um, and so that is how he sits there. So all of these things, and you can read, I'm not going to, but you can read through all of this. It's absolutely incredible all the way down through chapter 46. And you read all these different things that's going to take place. And then finally, you come to chapter 47, where there's water that flows out of the temple. And it starts like, like a small stream. And this small stream comes out from the temple and flows down through the valleys. And the more it flows, the more water there is. In other words, it just keeps growing and growing and growing. And here's the beautiful part. When it flows into the oceans, it removes the salt. And so this is God's, in a sense, final purging of the earth. And so this water is flowing out to cleanse all the waters that are throughout the earth. That's pretty incredible. But here's the beautiful part. As they are cleansed, the fish come to life. And now there's creatures. Why? Because most of the creatures died during the horror of the tribulation. And most of the creatures of the sea died. The seas were turned to blood. They were, they were black. There was no life in them. And so they become bitter. All the waters were undrinkable, unusable. But God is cleansing them. And where is the cleansing coming from? The presence of God. And it's flowing out from the very presence of God into the people. And so this is just a beautiful fulfillment of prophecy. All right. And so this can only take place. This can only take place. In a place that is controlled by the supernatural. That is a manifestation of everything that is supernatural. A new quality to creation, a new quality to life. And all of these things taking place. Now, here's the problem that starts at the bottom of page 2 and on up to the top of page 3. The way Bible commentators interpret these chapters from chapter 40 through chapter 46 and actually on into 47. There's, there's three different ways, just like the three kinds of the millennium, right? There's, there's three different ways that people interpret this section. The first view is Ezekiel predicted a rebuilding of Solomon's temple after the Babylonian captivity. Well, all right, here, listen to me. He did. But this isn't it. So he, he talked about God restoring them to the land, coming out of the Babylonian captivity. Jeremiah talked a lot about it. You're familiar with Jeremiah 10, right? And, you know, my thoughts toward you are always good, right? The intention is to bless you. And so, yeah, God, God was going to restore them and bring them out. Isaiah 40. Beautiful picture of God bringing them out of Babylon, restoring them to the land. 
Did Israel come from Babylon and get restored to the land? Yes, but did it ever become this? No, it never was this. And so the first view says, well, all of this is, is what Ezekiel prophesied was going to happen when they came back from Babylon. No. And if that's, if that's how you want to interpret this, then Ezekiel is a false prophet. Because it didn't happen. Right? So if, you, if your interpretation is that these things concerning the temple happened when Israel came back from Babylon, then Ezekiel becomes a false prophet because it didn't happen. Do you understand what I'm saying about that? I'm not calling him a false prophet. I'm saying if you believe it that way. I don't believe it that way. All right? That's why this first uh, view of this chapter 40 through 46 cannot be about return from Babylon. The second view is that Ezekiel was prophesying about a spiritual time that actually refers to the church. And so all of these things in here actually refer to, uh, are spiritualized to refer to the church in today. And so that all of this is really about the church. And my first question is, what? <laughs> how, how can that be? There's things in here that just don't fit. They, you can't spiritualize all these things and, and make them about the church. They're just not. And you cannot take what Ezekiel said and interpret the way you want to interpret it. You don't have that right. And so they, they, it, it can't be that this is about the church because there is just no way to make this apply to the church. However, I have heard people do it. And I have heard people take passages from here and apply them to the church age and that this is about the church. It's not about the church. It's about a future time. Now, where are we going to be? Oh, with Jesus watching this whole thing. We're going to watch him set the temple in the earth. We're going to watch the people flow into it. We're going to watch David be raised from the dead and installed as king and prince. We're going to watch it. Isn't that glorious? We'll see all of that. We're not going to do it. It's not about us because we're forever with the Lord. Doesn't matter for us as the church. It doesn't matter whether there's a millennium or not. Nothing changes for us. Now, we get an opportunity to rule and reign and, you know, have authority over a few people. Maybe beat some people up or whatever, you know, whatever, whatever it is. You know, take out our vengeance upon. No, we won't have any of that because we'll have been purged of all of those things, right? No matter how much you want to, you won't. So this is not about the church. This is about some glorious age that cannot be translated any other way than the fact that it's going to happen. Top of page three. We begin to see Ezekiel's view of the Millennial Temple and their service. And I'm going to end here 
uh, with this passage from Isaiah or from Ezekiel 43. So turn to Ezekiel 43. Because in Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, and it's there in your notes, the reversal of the departure of the Lord's glory. In Ezekiel chapters 10 and 11, see that in your notes? Go back and read that, not right now. But go back and read that, the entire two chapters. And the glory of God comes, God's presence with the cherubim and the, and the wheels and all of those things, and it comes down and it rests on the city and it moves off and it rests and it moves off and, and different things take place. Read through those two chapters. Please choose something that is a readable translation. Because if you try to do it in the old King James, you will get so lost. And, and, and don't do it in the Amplified. It will become so tedious that, that you will fall asleep in the midst of it, though that it is a beautiful translation. But don't do it there. So do it ESV or NIV or something like that, um, New American Standard, New King James even. Uh, read it through, chapters 10, 11, because there you see... Finally, you come down to it in, in uh, chapter 11 and verse 12, where the Lord's glory departs from Israel. And this is, God has warned them, and he's talked with them, and he's begged them through the prophets. And the prophets have begged them and commanded them and, and verbally abused them <laughs> to make them change, and they won't change. They just won't change. And so we finally come to chapter 11 and verse 22. Then the cherubim, Ezekiel eleven twenty-two. Then the cherubim lifted up their wings with the wheels beside them, and the glory of the God of Israel was over them, and the glory of the Lord went up from the midst of the city and stood on the mountain that is on the east side of the city. He removed his glory from Israel. And he lifted it off, and then it is gone. But now, look at Ezekiel 43. And so, has Israel really been anything since this time when God's glory departed from them? Well, they were a little bit of something back when they came back from Babylon. And in the time of Jesus, they had a great king over them. Who was he? Herod, not even a Jew. And everything he did was about himself. And then the Romans came and threw them out. Now they've come back to the land. And it's a glorious thing that God has done, a beautiful thing, bringing them back to their land and giving them the land and helping them to secure it. But it's, it's not glorious it's nothing like what's portrayed here. But there's coming a day when the glory of God is going to come back. And so what we'll finish with, look at chapter 43, verse 1. Then he led me to the gate, the gate facing east. So it's like he's inside the city. And he's looking at this gate. And behold, the glory of the God of Israel was coming from the east. What is this? What is this? 
the second coming of the Lord. This is God's coming. And this is the second coming. And so here we get an image, a picture of something that's not recorded in the New Testament book of Revelation or even in Jesus' words as he taught it in Matthew 24 that's going to take place when he returns is this glorious presence of God that is going to come to the city. And his glory is going to come. And the sound of his coming was like the sound of many waters, and the earth shone with his glory. The vision I saw was just like the vision I had seen when he came to destroy the city, and just like the vision I had seen by Kebar Canal. And I fell on my face. As the glory of the Lord entered the temple by the gate facing east, the Spirit lifted me up and brought me into the inner court, and behold, the glory of the Lord filled the temple. Isn't that beautiful? That's going to happen. And we're going to see it. We're going to see it. We're going to be right there as it's taking place before us. And Ezekiel says it right there. Just like it had happened when he departed, it's happening now when he returns. And this glorious presence. What do you think the people of Israel felt when God's glory departed from Jerusalem? from the temple and God moved out he'd been there he'd been begging them calling them counseling them weeping for them through Jeremiah loving them trying to defend them but they didn't want him and so finally he departed what do you think that was like well Think of what it will be like when he returns and his glory comes back. Take the reverse. And as awesome and wonderful and glorious as will be his return, so was his departure. And when he moved out, there must have been a darkness that came upon the people. Have you read the book of Lamentations? And the horror that took place there, you say, I don't want to read it. It's the, the whole book starts lamentation. I, I don't need a reason to cry. God wrote it so that we could see there was a reason to cry. There's a reason to lament. But there's also promise. His mercy is new every morning. It first comes right out of lamentation. It's is something's going to happen, and it is, in the millennium. And when God restores his people. So next week, we'll get into more of this. The glory that's in the throne. The altar of sacrifice. What? Sacrifices offered during the millennium? With Jesus present? They're burning sacrifices? Yeah. Why? Because, no, I can't. <laughs> Thank you, Johnny. Appreciate it. But because God told them to. And if they don't offer sacrifice, they're chastised. Chasten, maybe even put to death. Because people will die by the rod of the Lord 
during the millennium. They're not going to die from disease because there is none. They're not going to die from war because there is none. They're not going to die from animal preying on them, bugs or diseases or any of those things. They're not going to die from famine, but they will die from the severe punishment of the Lord. And so that will come even during the time of the millennium. All right? So there's what we got tonight. It's a different time. Nothing like anything that we can identify with. But it's going to come. I believe it's real. And just as much as God's prophecies concerning what was going to happen when he sent his son and redeemed mankind, so it's going to be when he comes to restore his glory in the earth before he creates a new heaven and new earth. Amen? All right. Uh, we get done. We get some prayer requests. And Jan's up here to pray with people. So if you want to come and uh, be a part of that, we will. Uh, one thing we're asked to pray for tonight is uh, David and Meg uh, Beltran. Uh, Meg and one of their children is both have COVID. And so they're asking for prayer. And so you guys can pray for Megan and Ray. So, Father, we thank you for your word tonight. We thank you, Father God, that you... You make promises and you keep them. And whatever you said, you will do. And you will do it in reality. Not just something figurative. Not just some mental image or fairy tale or, or some fabricated story to encourage us. No, this is real. And just as real as what you will do in the time of the millennium is what you will do in our lives. You will restore and heal and strengthen. You will deliver us, defend us, give us peace, overwhelm us with your grace and with your love. You will, because you promised. Father, we thank you for your faithfulness. In Jesus' name, amen.